Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of The Warning Woods. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it five stars and writing a review. Reviews help spread the podcast to more listeners. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Warning Woods. I'm Miles Tridel, and this story is called The Church. My church has grown weak. It has been corrupted, and soon it will fall. It's under attack from below and within. I feel powerless to stop it and keep my congregation from the clutches of hell. I began to notice the creeping corruption months ago through a series of signs and events. The very foundation of my church has been shaken and broken, both literally and figuratively. But more on that later. I often work alone in my office near the back of the church, It's where I prepare my sermons, take calls, and respond to emails from the congregation. It's a tranquil place where I can also renew my own faith. Every so often I must retreat into the Word of God to find affirmation and replenish my spiritual energies. It was during such a moment of retreat that the first sign of the devil's manipulation appeared to me, though I didn't recognize it as such back then. I was sipping coffee as I read from my worn Bible. The coffee was lukewarm since I was the only one in the building and never bothered to freshen the pot until it was empty. I was reading a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. As my eyes scanned that verse, I took a big swig from my coffee mug, expecting to get a mouthful of bitter, room-temperature liquid. Somehow, the beverage had become hot enough to burn my lips and mouth. It scorched my throat as I desperately swallowed. I could feel the heat all the way down to my stomach, causing me to shoot up from my chair and pace around the office with my tongue out like a madman. The following Sunday... I was preaching from the pulpit to a weary-eyed crowd. It's been years since I preached to a congregation that looked like it wanted to be there. These days, most people I see in my church seem to be there out of obligation rather than faith or passion. I had chosen to take the hot coffee as a prompt to deliver a message on 1 Timothy. 
I had crafted the whole sermon around verse 1 and instructed my flock to guard their hearts against seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. At the mention of doctrines of devils, a cacophonous jumble of notes echoed from the piano on the side of the stage. I turned to see Deborah, our faithful pianist, slumped over the keyboard. She wasn't moving. As the dissonant notes faded, I ran to her. The congregation just watched in a motionless silence. As I lifted Deborah's limp body from the keys, I tried to feel her breath or find a pulse, but observed neither. I shouted for someone to call 911 and asked if there were any doctors in the room. It felt as if a spell had been cast over the audience. My cries for help were met with blank stares, and everyone remained seated. Everyone, that is, except for one man. When I had made my desperate pleas, I noticed him standing in the back of the room, watching. I hoped my eyes were playing tricks on me, because I was almost sure he was grinning. The next time I looked up, the door was closing, and the man was gone. The next gathering at the church was Deborah's funeral. She had been a faithful servant, and it hurt to lose her. They said it was a heart attack that killed her, which was strange since she was only in her late forties and in rather good shape. I mingled with the funeral attendees after delivering Deborah's eulogy and an accompanying sermon on service to the church. I noticed someone standing at the back of the room. It was, I am almost sure, the same man who I'd seen grinning the morning Deborah died. I started to approach him, and he seemed skittish. I saw him mark the exit with his eyes and could sense his internal struggle not to bolt toward it. I kept him in place with a friendly wave and a smile. Did you know Deborah well? I asked the man. He looked down at his feet with his hands in his pockets and shrugged. I seen her playing the piano, he mumbled. I asked if he didn't know the deceased, what moved him to attend the funeral. I don't know, was all he said. I wanted to keep the man engaged. I wanted to learn who he was and why he was really there. Something, maybe guidance from above, told me I needed to speak with this man. I saw you the morning Deborah died, I told him. You left, didn't you? How come? Now he perked up. I saw that grin break out clear as day. It was toothy and unnerving. The devil works in mysterious ways, preacher. And when he's working, his ways are the type you should get out of. The man spoke clearly now aside from his riddleish wording. He had suddenly become articulate and confident. He left me stammering, grasping for a response. Before I could think of what to say, he nodded and snuck away toward the exit. We buried Deborah in the small cemetery behind the chapel. I'd hired two young congregants to dig the six-foot hole while everyone else listened to the eulogy. They had completed their task on time, and the grave was ready to receive Deborah's coffin when the procession exited the church. The air was solemn, an odd juxtaposition to the cheerfully sunny day outside, as the pallbearers lowered our pianist into the ground. I was just about to give instructions to fill the hole when the earth beneath us trembled. A few attendees gasped, one even fell over. The tremor only lasted a few long seconds but left everyone nervous. Again, I attempted to order Deborah's grave to be filled, and again I was interrupted by a sound from the earth. 
This time it was a deep gurgling like a hot spring. A black ooze began pouring into the grave from its dirt walls. It reeked like rotting fruit and sulfur. The attendees began to murmur amongst themselves between gags. One of the boys who was supposed to fill the hole pulled his collar over his mouth, dropped his shovel, and ran behind the church. I didn't move. I didn't speak. I didn't understand what was happening. The tar-colored ooze had never appeared during any of the numerous burials I'd seen over in that cemetery. The wretched scent eliminated oil, fuel, or, as previously mentioned, tar. But I had never seen another substance with that color or consistency in my life. Mysterious ways, I heard the voice of the stranger from before whisper in my ear. I made my first move, spinning around to confront him, but no one stood near me. The man was nowhere to be seen. That, in all honesty, was the first time I felt scared. It would be far from the last. As the murmuring crowd dispersed, I ended up filling Deborah's grave myself. In the weeks post-funeral, I resumed my usual duties. I spent many hours in my office drinking perfectly warm cups of coffee. The only thing I found bothersome was the dwindling numbers in the congregation. On Sunday mornings, I would look out over my flock and notice a dozen or more missing. The reduction compounded until there were only about 30 or so faithful ones left. I left the pulpit after one sermon and approached a faithful congregant named Harold. Harold had been attending my church since long before I was appointed as its minister. I asked him, what is happening? Where has everyone gone? Harold, a weathered man with a heavy brow, looked deep into my eyes and placed a heavy hand on my shoulder. You remember that message you preached on 1 Timothy? He asked. Of course I remember. In the latter time, some shall depart the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, I replied. You think that's what's happening here? It ain't your fault, Harold told me. Something's taken hold of this town. If us faithful ones can't do something quick... I'm worried we'll be on a downhill ride to Revelations. Harold's warning shook me. When the last car had left the parking lot, I retreated to my office with the intention of emailing some of the other church leaders in my community. I needed to know if their congregations were experiencing the same decline as my own. I lifted the screen of my laptop and opened my email. At the top of my inbox was an unread email from another pastor with the subject line, We are under attack. That answered my question. I opened the email and read its contents. Dear fellow shepherd, I apologize for the dramatic subject head, but I fear it may be true. I have felt for some time now that the spiritual war we warn people of is leaving the hearts and minds of our followers and manifesting in new, more dangerous ways. My church, the building specifically, has been repeatedly vandalized with bloody symbols and unholy images. The police have not been helpful. They are entirely disinterested, which leads me to believe whatever is taking over this community has already gotten to our town leaders. My church, referring now to its members, has been greatly affected by this new force. I now have only a handful of attendees on Sunday and no one ever comes any other day of the week. I fear it won't be long before I am preaching to an empty room. If you are experiencing the same troubles, please respond. We must remain united as God's chosen shepherds to defeat whatever evil is seducing our flock away from the Lord. Together, 
I hope we can uncover this malevolent force and restore the spiritual well-being of our community. In faith, Reverend James. I immediately clicked on the swooping arrow to reply. Dear Reverend was all I had typed before my screen went black. As every light in my office also shut off, I felt my chair shake. Then I saw the items on my desk begin to rattle. Soon the entire room seemed to be rocking back and forth. Framed photos tumbled off the walls. Books flew off my shelf, and my lukewarm coffee spilled into my lap. I closed my eyes and gripped the arms of my chair, trying not to let my fear erupt in a scream. Earthquakes were not common to my area, and including the tremor at Deborah's funeral, this was the second one in a month. A loud crack reverberated from somewhere in the church. Then the building became still again. My lights turned back on as well as my laptop, which should have stayed on with battery power anyway. I slowly made my way out of the office, wishing I wasn't alone. I found other areas of the building similar to my office with decorations scattered about, plants knocked out of pots, and books laying open on the floor. It wasn't until I entered the chapel that I discovered the source of the cracking sound I had heard. The floor of the chapel was split almost perfectly down the center. Each half was separated by a two-inch crack in the concrete. It was disheartening to see my beautiful sanctuary torn in such a way, but it also felt oddly symbolic of the separation I was feeling within my congregation. I heard the sound of voices coming from outside. It sounded like dozens of people speaking in unison. I stepped toward the nearest window and looked into the lawn where I saw members of my congregation standing around the church, hand in hand. They all had their eyes closed and their heads bowed. They swayed back and forth, ever so slightly, as they chanted in a language unfamiliar to me. I ran to a window on the opposite wall, careful to step over the crack in the floor. As I feared, I saw the same image on the other side of the church. My flock had formed a ring around the church, surrounding it, surrounding me. He paced into view, the arcane stranger. He was not a part of the ring, but rather was walking between the people and the church, and seeming to encourage them. I wish I could have understood what they were saying. I didn't feel safe in the church, but my gut told me I would be in much more danger outside. I chose to do what I had been taught to do in times of trouble. I kneeled before the altar and prayed. I implored God to protect me against whatever evil had been cast upon my church. I pled for the souls of those outside and for their salvation. I begged for forgiveness for allowing evil to corrupt them in the first place. The chanting outside grew louder, and a new sound reached my ears. Flames. Crackling fire was somewhere close. I smelled smoke and sulfur, both putrid and suffocating. Daring to break from my prayers only for a moment, I looked over my shoulder. The crack running down the middle of the floor was glowing with a bright red and orange hue. Smoke was starting to pour out of it. The time had come and gone for intervention from above. I decided it was time to call for earthly help. I dialed 911 on my cell phone and heard a friendly voice ask, What is your emergency? My church has caught fire and there's people outside who won't let me out. I told the dispatcher, I need the fire department. I need the police. No, the dispatcher's voice took on a new tone that froze my heart. You need God, preacher. Where is God? Shouldn't he help you? I panicked and ended the call. 
A part of Reverend James' email instantly came to mind. Whatever is taking over this community has already gotten to our town leaders. The evil had taken over my congregation, and others by the sound of it, and had infested the town authorities. I wondered where I could go. The fire was growing higher as the chanting grew louder outside, but I didn't know where to run. The doors to the chapel burst open, and the strange man entered with his signature grin spread wide across his face. He approached me with a hostile confidence, stepping right through the flames. He stood toe-to-toe with me as he stared into my eyes. Without breaking his gaze, he reached behind me to the altar. There, was all he said. Then he stepped back and gestured for me to look at what he had done. There was a cross mounted on the front of the altar. The man had spun it upside down. Tears came to my eyes as I realized defeat was inevitable. It was as if the man had lowered my flag and replaced it with the enemy's. This is his church now, he said. It needs a leader. I shouted at him, I'll never lead these people to hell. A new expression came over him. It contained a deep sorrow, reflected also in his voice as he said, That's what I thought too. You can make a choice, he continued. You may leave, but you will be followed. Wherever you go, this blessed evil will also go. You may save yourself, but how many will you damn in your selfish escape, preacher? I wanted to tell him that was ridiculous, but as I stood before the inverted cross, feeling the heat of the flames and smelling the sulfuric stench of hell, I knew he spoke the diabolical truth. Is that what happened to you? I asked him. I thought I saw a tear in one of his eyes now. He stepped toward me and put a hand on my shoulder. It wasn't threatening. Stay, he whispered. Please. These people are already lost. You can't do them any more harm. Is that the other option? I asked. He nodded. And so, once again, I became the leader of my congregation. In secret, far from the church, I still pray to God for the salvation of my flock but I fear he is no longer listening. I fear I have been cast out for my sins. I am not bitter. I understand. I cannot forgive myself either. You can support The Warning Woods by clicking the Anchor Support link in the description or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. Of course, the best way to help is by writing a review and following this podcast in Apple Podcasts or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.